Welcome to the second series of the Cutting Edge Issues podcast from the Department of International Development at the LSE. These podcasts are recordings from the Cutting Edge Issues in Development, Thinking and Practice lecture series for the academic year 2021-2022. This series of guest lectures is coordinated by me, Duncan Green, Professor in Practice in the Department, and the Professor of Development Studies, James Putzel. Each week in the Cutting Edge series, Renowned guest lecturers share their expertise and spark discussion on an exciting range of issues, from the battle over COVID vaccines with Jayati Ghosh, to what's wrong with aid with Claire Short, to the political economy of Parasite, the Oscar-winning movie with Harjun Chang. Since 2020, the series has taken place online, enabling us to host fantastic speakers from around the world and to stream the lectures via this podcast and on YouTube, opening them up to a global audience. I hope you enjoy the lecture. Okay, welcome everybody. Um, my name is Duncan Green. Uh, I'm a professor in practice at the Department for International Development, and I'm chairing tonight's discussion. Now what I want to do is go on to the uh, actual speakers and introduce them because we have a cracking lineup for tonight. The main speaker is Tasneem Esop, who is currently the executive director of the Climate Action Network International. Um, she's just completed serving her second term, so she must have been good, uh, as Commissioner in the National Planning Commission in South Africa, appointed by the President, and she leads the work on climate change and just transition. She previously headed the climate team in World Wildlife Fund International and served as the head of delegation for the organization of the UNFCCC, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. She became a member of the Provincial Parliament in the Western Cape in 1994 and held the positions of Provincial Minister of Trans transport, public works, and property management from 2001 to 2004, and Provincial Minister for the Environment, Planning, and Economic Development from 2004 to 2008, when she resigned from politics. Well, I'm not sure if she resigned from politics. She resigned from political office, which is not the same thing. So Tasneem was an anti-apartheid activist from an early age in different capacities until the democratic elections in 1994. During this time, she was a student and youth activist, a teacher, and a trade unionist. What a fantastic CV. So we've got somebody in front of us who has been in positions of power. She's been in positions of social organization. She's been right at the heart of the debates on climate change. And she's going to talk us through the results of Glasgow and the Glasgow COP in November. The discussant is an old mate of mine, Tim Gore. Tim is the head of the Low Carbon and Circular Economy Programme at the Institute for European Environmental Policy, IIEP. He's a regular commentator in international media and public speaker on the climate and inequality crises and a member of the board of Climate Action Network Europe. And what I love about Tim is that he comes on my blog, he writes pieces, and I don't have to edit them because he's such a good writer. So I'm really happy to have Tasneem and uh, Tim on the, uh, on the, on the, on the lecture. Uh, Tasneem is going to speak for 45 minutes or so. Um, and then Tim's going to be a discussant to kick off the discussion for 10 minutes. So Tasneem, would you like to uh, get started? Thank you very much, Duncan, and uh, greetings to everybody. Um, best wishes for 2022. I hope that some of you had a bit of a break so that we come into this very challenging year, well-rested and fully energized. I, I really am wanting to express my deep gratitude uh, to you for inviting me to, to participate in this cutting edge session. Um, 
I would want to, I, I've been told that this is a lecture. I would like Duncan to see this as an engagement and a really important engagement, just understanding that what we're dealing with when dealing with a climate emergency is so complex. There are no easy answers. There's no blueprint. Um, and, and so engagement, dialogue, debate is really important. So. I will try to stick to the commitment that I might be even shorter than 45 minutes, but let's see how it goes. So greetings again to everybody. I have been tasked to speak about COP26, the outcomes of COP26 and what the implications are for the way forward, the next steps, what needs to be done uh, based on you know, what we achieved or did not achieve at COP26. So I really do want to um, be clear that you, I'm sure you have seen many, many, many analysis um, produced already uh, from different perspectives. Uh, at the end of COP26, I tweeted that, you know, what we're going to witness now is of course the battle of narratives and so you would uh, have seen and read different um, perspectives of the outcomes, what happened at COP and the outcomes, et cetera. I therefore want to make it very clear that what I'm going to offer by way of perspective is going to be something um, of a view uh, through a climate justice and social justice lens. So what you'll hear from me really would be <clears throat> uh, you know, uh, weighted towards uh, understanding COP26 within that broader justice framing and what we needed from that COP and what we actually got out of that COP. And why are we, why am I choosing to look at this through a climate justice frame? Uh, you know, climate justice has been used by language that has now been used by even the mainstream, often, of course, uh, probably not uh, necessarily with similar understandings, but the climate justice frame and looking at the emergency within that frame and looking at what happens in these multilateral processes are important because it basically uh, puts the climate crisis in its ethical and political context and not, uh, you know, as often is the case, not just viewed as an environmental issue. The climate justice frame also assists us in bringing um, in the intersectionality of climate justice and social justice. So addressing issues of inequality, the human rights issues, power, poverty, et cetera. So it really is an important frame to, to uh, you know, look at uh, in a very real way, those intersectionalities. And then of course, it also helps us forefront the fact that climate change has differentiated, and that's really important, impacts and will serve to worsen existing crises, um, such as inequality, poverty, gender injustice, etc. So that uh, the nexus between the climate crisis, development, etc., becomes, uh, 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 you know, through the climate justice frame, becomes really useful. It also recognizes, of course, that there is historical responsibility, something that rich nations would love to ignore. But uh, if you're looking at it through a climate justice frame, that is uh, uh, an important recognition. And of course, this climate justice frame makes clear the different means to achieve justice. Um, 
And so both in terms of, you know, climate, achieving climate justice and social justice. So would look at things like redistributive justice, procedural justice, transformative justice. So I, I just wanted to put into perspective why I'm choosing, um, like many others in the wider movements, to look at this multilateral process that is often seen as very technical, etc., through a climate justice lens, and therefore um, give you a sense of what I thought uh, the, the COP26 did and did not deliver. So to look at um, COP26, uh, what were the outcomes, uh, what we achieved. Um, it's important, I think, to again, remind ourselves actually that that event took place in a very particular context. Firstly, it was um, the previous, the, the time frame for that COP was delayed by a year. So the last COP had taken place two years before that at, in Madrid, uh, lots of uh, unfinished business. In fact, the Madrid COP wasn't a success at all on a number of issues. And so uh, the pandemic hit and then the COP was postponed by a year. So in that interceding period, the context of course just changed dramatically. And what we were living through in 2021 especially was uh, you know, just experiencing these multiple and compounding crises, the COVID pandemic, of course, wreaking havoc across the world and most sharply felt in poor developing countries. Through the period, we witnessed increasing inequality and poverty with millions, in fact, moving back into poverty and unemployment. Now, this pandemic raging gets further you know, compounded, the crisis gets further compounded by the experience of more frequent extreme weather when events across the world. Nobody remains untouched on any continent. Hurricanes in the Philippines, flooding in Uganda and Germany, heat waves in Northwestern America. Um, but, you know, it's being felt both in um, developed and developing countries across geographies, but again, just to be clear, it hits the vulnerable the hardest. Vaccine apartheid during this period, uh, unbelievable display of lack of solidarity, especially by rich nations, to just save lives. And so, you know, the disappointing outcome of a G7 that preceded the COP in that year uh, just contributed also, you know, in the G7, the richest nature, nations meeting did not even uh, come anywhere near uh, making the kinds of commitments to fulfill their climate finance commitments that they've made. And so this just contributed to this overall atmosphere of distrust. There's so the, the, the lack of trust between developed and developing countries. At the same time, we've also all witnessed shrinking democratic space especially for our frontline defenders and the rise of the right wing in many places, fake news reeking, uh, you know, just uh, putting out uh, disinformation and confusing people. And uh, again, in many places, very sharpened culture wars that we have witnessed. In a sense also, this general lack of 
moral political leadership is also then uh, becoming clearer. And Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General of the UN, of course, says a very, in a very serious indictment, called this an A for science, but an F for ethics, uh, as a reference to the lack of moral leadership in the world. At this time, many countries announced recovery programs and many of these countries announced that they're going to use the opportunity to go green basically so to have recovery plans that would invest in a shift towards a more sustainable and green future um, and also address climate at the same time but in fact that did not materialize what the reality was that there was continued investment in fossil fuels and other polluting sectors um, and as we, as I said earlier, in this year, there, we, we witnessed the breaking of all kinds of climate records, the increase in emissions after a, a bit of a dip in the previous year, increasing temperatures and increasing uh, extreme events. So while this is the context, I should also mention that what, um, you know, everything does sound very despairing, which it is, but at the same time, what we also witnessed in this period is the kind of, <clears throat> after a bit of a, a lull, just given the pandemic, the resurgence and rebuilding of the climate movement in 2021, <clears throat> with a number of key events, mobilizations, and in a very innovative way, um, especially the youth, continue to build that momentum and action. So, uh, you know, in this context, it's not as if everything just, you know, uh, is all despairing. There is this positive um, momentum through movements themselves continuing to keep the push and the pressure. So that is the context in which this COP26 hosted by the UK government happens in Glasgow. And we cannot ignore that because that then sets up very serious expectations, this context of rising inequality, poverty, suffering, mostly experienced by those who are most vulnerable, the poor, the working class, women, etc., and especially in developing countries. So within that context, you know, our expectations for this COP26 was much higher in terms of the need for it to deliver and respond to what we are all experiencing and living through. At the same time, during that year, ahead of the COP, we, um, the IPCC delivered its working group to report and the science becomes even clearer. And here again, Guterres talks about code red for humanity. And so essentially that report just uh, spells out the kind of physical impacts of climate change and also what the impacts will be for humanity. And so what we've experienced already, extreme heat, heavy rainfall, drought, fire, um, the ocean acidification, et cetera, all of that we living through and witnessing. So these are not long-term impacts that we are you know, used to think about. They're happening now. They happened in 2021 and the COP happens in that context. So in this way, COP26 was really set up to 
to be that moment of political reckoning uh, to address the climate emergency, that it was this time when we should hold polluters to account so that they do meet the needs of the most vulnerable in this crisis. And that the, this COP26 needed to therefore deliver very strong basis to achieve climate justice. And while we understand that 2021 was an unprecedented year uh, for climate impacts, as I said, compounding the existing uh, other crises, the IPCC uh, warning us about worsening climate catastrophes. What we understand, therefore, as we go into the COP, um, and yeah, I'm trying to, to build this understanding of how we as climate, uh, as part of the climate movement, saw this COP. We really believed that this is the time since we are in the era of climate impacts that we would have to address very importantly, um, loss and damage, adaptation, finance, the key issues that will then address the context um, and our experiences. But um, maybe some of you know, there was a lot of, um, uh, I suppose, exciting things happening ahead of the COP. The UK government, uh, and I will be polite about this, did not really, um, prepare very well for the COP. And we had raised a number of concerns about it as a, as a network, the network that I lead um, ahead of the COP, uh, which they weren't listening to. Logistics, safety, uh, the fact that the pandemic will mean that the COP itself might not be inclusive, etc. And so um, set against this backdrop of vaccine inequity, all of that comes under scrutiny. And certainly just that issue of um, the lack of trust between rich countries, uh, whether they will in fact address the climate crisis and or will they use the same approach as they did with the pandemic, self-interest, look inward and not really address the needs and express and display solidarity with those who are suffering in the world. So really real questions about what the especially the rich nations were going to do at COP26 and whether they were committed to addressing the needs of the most vulnerable. So essentially, when we went into the COP as uh, this, my network, but of course the wider climate movement, especially those fighting for climate justice, we certainly wanted this COP to deliver broadly on two areas. The one, of course, is to deliver on the levels of ambition needed to address the climate crisis. So to make sure that the kind of radical and drastic reduction in emissions takes place so that we can avoid catastrophic climate change. The second, of course, is to achieve what I'm arguing for, and that is climate justice. And the, the, the proxy or our way of understanding what that climate justice could look like within a COP uh, context is of course, as I said earlier, recognizing that these impacts have hit those who are least responsible for the climate crisis the hardest, that the issue of losses and damages due to climate change was going to have to be the big issue 
on the agenda of this COP. Now, I, I do want to, to use this opportunity to just talk a little bit about our general approaches to, to our participation as activists in these multilateral processes. We've been in these processes for many years. Uh, you know, the results are pretty much the same. It's incremental uh, changes or little victories that we see over and over again. But we're in a different context, as I said. And here we're really talking about a massive uh, uh, crisis for humanity, impacting all of us across the board, but more so those who are vulnerable. And so we couldn't go into this COP with this kind of business as usual approach. We'll go in there, we'll lobby with the, uh, uh, the negotiators, we'll try and achieve text changes here and there. And so what we decided to do in partnership with a whole range of other civil society formations and you know even uh, other partners who are not necessarily civil society, we decided that even though loss and damage was not formally on the agenda for negotiations as such, finance for loss and damage, we were going to make pretty sure that this is going to have to be an agenda item, even though it wasn't formally. And so we tested new tactics by doing this. You know, there are always many issues that we would all want to deal with, but we decided that we are going to focus on the issue of getting finance for loss and damage agreed to, and that we would make this the litmus test for the outcome of COP26. It met with a lot of resistance. You know, uh, the UK government really saw loss and damage as this little piece under another mechanism that needed to be sorted out. They weren't willing to actually put finance for, for loss and damage on the agenda. And so we had heavy lifting to do. <coughs> which we did. And what was really exciting is, you know, we set this objective uh, through this tactic of being pretty focused and um, escalating things before the COP and at the COP to the point that we really said this issue should not be ignored. And I'm really pleased to say it was really testing new tactics, right? Um, to say, uh, this loss and damage issue, which is also an issue that people really don't firstly necessarily understand, you know, in, in wide com in the communities necessarily. Um, it's always seen as a technical issue, but it's deeply political and very real for those who are already experiencing impacts. And the fact that we managed to get so much attention on this issue at COP we, you know, it was on the insides, the media coverage on loss and damage was uh, consistent and regular, uh, the wider civil society movement who are not working on the inside, but on the outside in the marches, uh, the global day of action, etc. loss and damage. And if you, I've, I've got photos, but I'm sure many of you have seen the pictures, loss and damage did end up becoming one of the big issues that we put as the peoples, put on that agenda of COP, that it could not be ignored to the point. And yeah, I think, you know, we're going to have to learn the lessons of adopting new tactics and how we use power. We talk about building power, but we also need to use power to bring about shifts. The G77 plus China, which is of course the block of developing countries often do not necessarily come out with united positions on all issues all the time. 
But on this issue, the G77 plus China put forward a proposal for text for the establishment of a finance facility for loss and damage, which was in our view at that point, a huge victory. It was really great. And of course that happened through the pressure of vulnerable uh, countries, the least developing countries, the small island states, et cetera, with civil society creating the kind of cover and pressure for that to happen. And what happened, of course, is something I will tell you when I deal with the outcomes. But I wanted to talk about how, as civil society, we also needing to interrogate our, um, our strategies, uh, our tactics, and you know, especially the fact that we need to be far more sophisticated in the way we use the power that we have and that we're building up um, as well. So when we got to um, what we want out of the COP, loss and damage finance was the key issue. Of course, as I said, we wanted to have um, clear uh, levels of ambition, so to be in line with the 1.5 degrees, that uh, there has to be delivery of the 100 billion finance commitment that was made a decade ago. And of course, we wanted this COP to be an important moment where we signal the end of the fossil fuel um, industry. And so those were the things that we actually as a network, as activists, uh, through a climate justice frame, we wanted out of this COP. Did we get it? Well, I can tell you, um, certainly not what we needed to ensure climate justice. On the levels of ambition, again, you know, it, uh, uh, there was a whole narrative about how all these announcements that were made outside of the formal multilateral process. And there were many, many announcements, some of them really uh, uh, good announcements, that that took us very close to 1.5. The problem is that these were announcements. These are initiatives. There's no accountability mechanisms. There's no mechanisms to check the robustness of any of those announcements. But this was part of this kind of uh, curation of the moment to, uh, you know, because the UK government said, this is the last chance for 1.5. And the official commitments on the table in the multilateral process does not add up to 1.5. So all these other initiatives and their announcements, they sort of said, well, we're getting close to 1.5. Please don't despair. But the reality is, no, we're not. And really that is the reality. So on mitigation, on the levels of ambition, the one thing that we, uh, probably will revisit and I'll talk about the next steps is the fact that they have agreed to come back at the end of 2022 and countries have been asked to look at the revise to revise their 2030 commitments. One of the big things, not of course, nothing that we would say is a huge victory, but you must recall that in the context of the UNFCCC, the issue of fossil fuels has never been an issue for that agenda. In this outcome though, very weak language, but language nonetheless, the issue of fossil fuels gets put on the agenda. And so there is a clause that deals with now what is called the phase down of unabated coal power and also the phase out of what they're calling inefficient 
fossil fuel subsidies. Uh, you know, we can debate what that means. I've never heard of anything as efficient fossil fuel subsidies, but at least what we get out of this COP in terms of uh, the, the ambition is fossil fuel gets put on the agenda. So I will talk about how we need to take that forward next. On the issue of ensuring justice and solidarity and addressing uh, the needs of poor and vulnerable countries and communities, nothing, quite honestly. 100 billion that they were supposed to deliver, not delivered. They issue an apology and a regret for missing the target and kick this down the line uh, to the future, to uh, I think 2023. So no finance delivery on a, on a commitment made already, as I said, many years ago. We get a bit on adaptation, so that uh, there's a commitment to double adaptation finance by 2025, and uh, to look at uh, operationalizing what they call the global goal for adaptation. On loss and damage, nothing. In fact, rich nations, and we believe it's actually the US, made interventions to block the G77 plus China text from getting agreed to. So the text that called very importantly for this finance facility for loss and damage got dismissed, did not make it through to the text, was not agreed to. And in fact, in its place, they called for a dialogue about this. So, and how long that dialogue will take place, we don't know, but that's what was finally agreed to on one of the most pressing, most urgent issues that needed to be addressed at this COP. So that was a dismal failure. We called it a betrayal of vulnerable, vulnerable peoples across the world. So where do we go next? Now, we come out of 2021. I've spoken about the context. We've just entered 2022. We've, we've been reading about the signs telling us that this last seven years were the hottest on record. There's projections that extreme weather events will intensify in 2022 and beyond. The pandemic continues to wreak havoc. Omicron is just, you know, um, exploded across the world. The numbers are getting higher. Of course, the issue of vaccine rollout is still a problem in poor developing countries. So the vaccine inequity issue remains. And poverty and inequality, of course, is still worsening. Now, what was, and, and I know that, um, uh, Tim, I hope you don't mind me referring to your previous life in Oxfam. <clears throat> you know, Oxfam has produced a really, really important reports on issues of carbon inequality. Um, and I hope you can read those and recently just put out a report again on inequality kills. And this, you know, for me, I think the important um, issue that I, I often feel very, uh, I suppose, not optimistic, I'm not optimistic about it because it doesn't seem to have really hit us in the gut as much as it should, but the kind of obscene inequality that we are witnessing in the world. And the, this Oxfam report basically highlights that 10 of the richest men, and I note men, doubled their wealth during the pandemic. Now, while 
nearly 160 million more people are actually pushed back into poverty. 10 men double their wealth. And of this, why they talk about this uh, inequality kills, 21,000 people die every day due to inequality. And uh, they've said that that is, uh, you know, can you bring that down to one every four seconds? And in this, Bezos, Musk, and the eight others of this 10 men earn 1.2 billion US dollars a day. Now let's put that into perspective. 160 million people being pushed back into poverty. 1.2 billion a day earned by the top richest people in the world. At the same time, last year, the IMF put out a report that also tells us something quite horrific, that fossil fuel subsidies, this is subsidies to the fossil fuel industry that's driving the climate crisis, amount to $5.9 trillion or $11 million per minute. Per minute, $11 million. So in that context, and of course, there's much more that we can talk about the context we're living through. What should we be doing next? Well, the first thing I want to say is that, uh, you know, I would want to suggest that we would need to intensify the work and the fights we are um, putting for ensuring climate and social justice. We just have to intensify the fight across the board because what we're going to need to address the, this emergency, and I will say emergencies because of the multiple crises we're experiencing, is of course a radical transformation of our economies and societies. And so the time for that and the window for that is closing very rapidly. Uh, you know, we have to have emissions reduced by half if we want to stay below that kind of, not entirely safe, but below 1.5 to avoid catastrophic climate change and all the consequences coming with that. So that's the one thing I think for all of us, especially those who are active or would like to become active, we need to intensify these fights wherever we find ourselves. The other thing that I think is really important for us to do as part of this radical transformation of our economies is to ensure, you know, that the just transition away from uh, fossil fuel based economies is happening. It's, if it's only if it hasn't happened yet and there's no planning for it and you know entire uh, a kind of whole of society approach hasn't been adopted yet then we're in trouble it should have happened uh, and we should be already far down the line in planning these just transitions uh, already there are some exciting uh, opportunity not exciting well potential uh, of opportunities for us to also take things that has come out of the COP26 um, agreement or pact as they call it. Um, the one is of course, just pushing back uh, again, pushing on the work that we started at COP26, this whole escalation 
on the issue of addressing climate impacts, making sure that there's going to be finance for addressing the losses and damages, and that that work starts now. It's not a, a COP issue, but that we start putting on that pressure already. We are going to, of course, have to deal with addressing climate impacts in a real way because people are experiencing it and they are, um, uh, you know, we need to address that. Uh, but also, we need to ensure that the multilateral process recognizes and establishes this finance facility. So again, continue our escalation on that issue. The fact, as I said earlier, that this agreement does now talk about fossil fuels is a door that needs to be pushed in completely. That door needs to be opened up and we have to put fossil fuels firmly on the agenda again, um, not just at the COP, Every day should be a day that we're pushing back on the fossil fuel industry. Every day should be a day. And at the COP itself, in the multilateral process, build off this very weak uh, outcome and language on fossil fuels and push that to be far more ambitious in the next round. And then also use this opportunity where they've said governments must come back at the end of this year with uh, enhanced national actions. So we need to do our work in at the national levels to push our governments to in fact do that. Don't come with uh, you know, stories about how we can't revise these things. We're doing the best we can. We, every country can uh, do better. So certainly to use this opportunity of them needing to come back in 2022 and so we have to make sure that we keep 1.5, uh, you know, it, it's uh, really big debates about that, but we do try and keep as far as possible 1.5 alive. And we do that through an equitable and fair shares way, which means that finance needs to be delivered. Now COP27 is going to be hosted in Egypt. It is already being recognized as an African COP. And so it would be really important as a COP being hosted on one of the most vulnerable continents in the world, uh, vulnerable to climate change and all the other crises, poverty, inequality, etc. It would be important for us to put a lot of pressure on this COP to be the COP that delivers for the vulnerable, not just in Africa, but the vulnerable peoples across the world. And the last thing I would like to also just add for all of us is to say that you know, we, in a very small way, we could see how using and asserting our power on one issue in this multilateral space um, did create some kind of movement on something that was not even on the agenda. So the issue of continuing to build power through people's movements and then using that power strategically and getting sharper at our tactics so that we can catalyze the kind of uh, change that we require, um, not at an event only, but that we do this, of course, because we need radical transformation of our economies and societies. And then connecting our fights, you know, we often, uh, you know, climate activists are, you know, seem to be operating in a little climate bubble, but connecting these fights and therefore climate justice lens is important. The fights for social justice and climate justice become critical. 
And so thank you very much, Duncan. I'll leave it there. I'm not sure if I went over my allocated time um, and certainly really looking to, well, forward to Tim's um, responses and then to the engagement we'll have with everybody. Thank you very much. Thanks, Tasneem. Um, I think you've achieved a, a first, which is to actually speak less than the time you were supposed to think speak for, which uh, I think has never happened on, on this lecture series. Over to you, Tim, for 10 minutes of, of discussion. Brilliant. Well, thanks, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Um, and as, uh, as Tasneem alluded to, uh, we've been working together for a long time. I used to, uh, before my current role, I was at Oxfam. I was the head of policy for climate change and, and food for uh, well over a decade. Uh, so Taz and I had a lot of time at the UNFCCC process. Uh, wading through the the difficult moments um and i just thanks uh, Taz. you know i think we're all so lucky uh, to have you now in this in this position in particular leading can so thank you for everything that you are that you are doing um i would just add a two two aspects i wanted to reflect on as well that Tasim has touched on uh, one is about the uh, keeping 1.5 alive and the emissions gap and what we do about it now and bringing an equity perspective to that question uh, and I'll just reflect on a couple of the pieces of work that we've done uh, around carbon inequality that Tasneem mentioned um, and how that can that kind of work in civil society can perhaps uh, help to make a difference um, and what it means now in terms of the pressure that we need to bring to bear on certain countries and how we might go about that. And then the other, the other uh, aspect of the outcome at the COP I wanted to just reflect briefly on was uh, the doubling of adaptation finance uh, as well as perhaps to give a slightly more positive uh, outcome as well, that we can also take some uh, pride in the, the, the role that we've all played in civil society with developing countries to, to achieve that. Uh, so on the 1.5 degrees, um, as Taz said, I mean, this is the big part of the narrative for the COP presidency and, and for all of us, you know, that's the ultimate litmus test of whether or not this process, all of our efforts in the climate movement are adding up uh, sufficiently to, to stay uh, below um, that uh, critical uh, temperature threshold, which remember is there in the Paris Agreement because of the, uh, the demands of climate vulnerable countries in particular in Paris uh, five, six years ago. Um, and the fact remains, of course, that going into the COP, you know, we're certainly not on track uh, to keep warming below that level. And all of you that are familiar with the emissions gap framing that the UNEP, uh, the, the UN Environment Programme uh, uh, brings to this issue. They publish the reports every year, which estimate where emissions need to be by 2030 and by 2050, if we're to stay on track to limiting warming below that level and where we project them to be based on the emission reduction commitments that are on the table. And that gap is huge. I mean, it, you know, we need to reduce emissions still by approximately half where they are today now already by 2030. So that, you know, the, 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 the likelihood of doing that gets more and more challenging as each year of delay or inadequate action uh, passes. And um, uh, what, one thing that I wanted to, uh, to, to bring to the discussion is uh, how you might approach that question uh, from a climate justice perspective. The importance then of saying, well, who's responsible for this gap and who has to do what in order to get us back on track? And much of the debate, I would say traditionally and certainly at the at the UN level uh, uh, in terms of the fairness of, uh, of action to reduce emissions is focused on what different countries have to do. It's a, it's a fight ultimately, it's a UN negotiation and it's a fight ultimately between rich and poor countries. 
of course, with a lot of complexity and a, and a you know a lot of nuance, but it's it's about the responsibility of different countries. Now, one additional uh, lens that we have brought to that through the work that I started when I was at Oxfam and continued now in my new role at IEP, but still working with Oxfam and with colleagues in the Stockholm Environment Institute, is to look at um, not the responsibility of different countries to reduce emissions, but the responsibility of individuals, all of us as individuals, uh, and, uh, uh, and and to look at um, the inequality of that responsibility according to different global income groups, wherever people happen to live in the world, the rich and the poor. And so we've been able to show uh, uh, in recent years that uh, what we call extreme carbon inequality uh, uh, exists and is a core part of the climate problem uh, in that very approximately the richest 10% of people on the planet are more or less responsible for about half of global emissions every year. And uh, 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 very approximately the poorest 50% of people are responsible for about 10% of emissions. And what's more, the richest 1% alone are certainly responsible for more emissions than the poorest half of the global population. They, they might even be responsible for double the emissions of the poorest half of the population. So that's the general picture. What we brought to this uh, uh, with new analysis uh, that we published during the COP was to say, what's that picture look like in 2030? How can we uh, look at who is driving this emissions gap, which is pushing the 1.5 degree uh, goal out of reach? And what, so we basically, you know, project forward based on the, the uh, emission reduction commitments that have been made by different governments. And what we showed is that based on, uh, on, the, on the commitments that are on the table, the richest 1% of people around the world in 2030, they're still going to have emission, um, still going to have per capita uh, carbon footprints, which are 30 times higher than they need to be uh, if we're to keep uh, warming below uh, or on track to keep it below the 1.5 degree goal. So this, th this group alone are just essentially, you know, way beyond what it can be a sustainable carbon footprint. The richest 10% are about 10 times higher. The middle classes are getting close to it. The global middle classes are actually getting closer and they make the biggest relative reductions by 2030. And meanwhile, the poorest 50% of people on the planet, they are still gonna be living well below that sustainable level. So this is the inequality that is driving the emissions uh, gap. It isn't the emissions of the vast majority of people on the planet that is pushing the 1.5 degree target out of reach. It is overwhelmingly uh, the emissions associated with the livelihoods and the consumption patterns of a minority of the world's very richest people. And by the way, that will include certainly in the richest 10%, everyone, of course, on this uh, uh, part of this meeting. Uh, but, um, you know, it's still in global terms, of course, a very small uh, and very wealthy and very privileged uh, elite. Um, so all, what, you know, what I take from this is that when we consider, well, who has to do what and how can we pick our strategies uh, for trying to keep this 1.5 degree goal within reach, that we need to think, yes, still about inequality between countries, but also increasingly about inequality within countries uh, as well. And so um, now my work is mostly focused at the EU level. And so one thing that we take away from the COP is, as Tasneem was saying, that the one thing that just about keeps the 1.5 degree alive, at least on paper, is this idea that countries now are required or, or requested to come back by the COP this year and show how they have strengthened their emission reduction commitments. And what's, of course, 
perhaps shouldn't surprise any of us is that a number of countries straight away, as soon as the ink was dry, said, oh, uh, well, that doesn't apply to us. So first, Australia came out and said, yeah, well, we're not going to be changing our 2030 target. And even the US came out even before Kerry was on the plane and said, well, probably that doesn't apply to us. This is for other people. Now, the real danger here is that all of the rich countries just go around and say, yeah, well, that's not for us. That's for the, the poor countries. They're the ones that need to increase their targets. And Tasneem will remember this, that we've, it's not the first time that the, United, the UNFCCC has been in this kind of situation. Actually, ever since the Copenhagen uh, Climate Summit in 2009 and the Cancun Agreements in 2010, there have been pressure to increase near-term emission reduction targets. There have been processes, there have been uh, analyses done under the UNFCCC, there have been high-level workshops, also all of the same kind of stuff. This has happened before, and yet the fact remains no country changed their 2020 targets. So if we want a different outcome this time around, we are going to have to try and do something a bit different. And there are other reasons why things might be different this time around. You know, uh, all of you that are students studying this stuff know that the world is changing, renewable energy prices are plummeting, the movement is building, lots of reasons to think that things could be different, but also our strategies will need to reflect that. And so partly what you know we're trying to do is to tell the EU, and the same would go for the UK, for those of you that are, are based in the UK, you know, that we, even though the UK is a reasonably ambitious target on the table, as does the EU relative to many other parts of the world, they are going to have to show that they are also considering strengthening their target in time for COP27 and prepared to come back and say how, what they have done to strengthen their target. Because if the EU and the UK don't do this, you can forget about any other part of the world, frankly, coming up with uh, strong, at least any of the major emitters coming back with stronger targets. And then the 1.5 degree uh, goal really is. Uh, out of the window and um, uh, we can forget all about it. So um, uh, we'll be putting that pressure on the EU. And that's tough because the EU has this 55% uh, net uh, emission reduction target by 2030. It's only just agreed it in law, in a climate law earlier uh, last year. So essentially the, the, you know, the challenge here for campaigners, for advocates is tough because you're saying, okay, you guys have just locked that into law. Now you need to change it. So that's very difficult. So what we are arguing, at least, is that in the EU, the way now that we need to get more ambition out of the EU is that they must uh, design the uh, policies that will implement that target with the maximum ambition such that they can overachieve it. And that's what we're working on. There's a huge amount of legislation coming through the EU level uh, and the same in the UK. And that's, I would say, a big needs to be a big focus now of all of our efforts is on that implementing legislation, getting the maximum uh, ambitions such that we can overachieve on the targets that are on the table in countries like the UK or regions like the EU. Now, what that requires in itself is a big focus on inequality within our countries as well, because we know that the big barriers to, uh, to, to faster acceleration of climate policy, increasingly this is about uh, concerns, whether they're real or, or, or perceived, of the negative impacts on poorer parts of our societies. So we need to bring that inequality lens, understand, well, how do we do, how do we have a just transition within the EU, within the UK, as well as at the global level? And so uh, a lot of our work is, is focused around that, looking at the, uh, the ways in which climate policy can be a tool of progressive reform, uh, progressive redistribution within rich countries as well. And I think that's a big part of the agenda that I hope, you know, students at the LSE are, uh, are increasingly focused on. It's about what we do in rich countries as much as it is about what happens in poor countries. And then finally, I'll just offer a couple of reflections on the adaptation side of the story as well. I thought, you know, this is sort of similar really 
to the loss and damage story that Tasneem was telling about how we have managed in civil society to get loss and damage finally on the agenda, an issue that didn't even exist uh, really 15 years ago. Nobody was talking about it at all. Uh, and then, you know, slowly we're getting to this point. With adaptation of finance, it's been a similar, you know, long haul. And it, you only have to really go back to, to around the year 2000, 2001, uh, when Al Gore was uh, quoted as saying that adaptation was a dirty word. You know, still lots and lots of the climate movement didn't want to talk about adaptation because they thought that was about admitting failure. You know, the failure that, you know, that we, that we weren't going to uh, reduce emissions fast enough. And it was always a priority, though, of the most vulnerable countries in particular to say, well, we're not causing this problem, you know, and we are most affected by it. And it's happening now. This isn't about the future. So we need funds already to support our adaptation. And it's taken a long, long time to get to a point where that is taken more seriously. And I would say, you know, in, in the work that I was able to do with many others when I was at Oxfam, we've been part of putting that issue on the agenda. And that has involved, you know, if we think about well, how has that changed happened, um, certainly lots of research tracking the finance flows for adaptation, because even once the issue was recognized uh, in the Copenhagen agreements and the Cancun agreements, and there was supposed to be money flowing for adaptation, we started crunching the numbers and were able to show that the overwhelming majority of the money that was flowing was going to mitigation, was prioritizing middle-income countries, going to support uh, low-carbon uh, uh, emission reduction technologies in those countries where there's some kind of return arguably to be made, and no money was going to the poorest countries and going to adaptation. And so we've been putting a spotlight on that year after year after year with reports, with new stats, media work. The media have always liked that. There's always been good... Um, uh, interest from journalists in covering that story about how the money is flowing. We even managed to get some of our campaigns. We, we, we ran public campaigns. <laughs> they, were, they always found that a very difficult subject to communicate to supporters, Oxfam supporters, NGO supporters about, but we managed to try to find ways to talk about climate finance, whether it was flowing to adaptation or not. These are difficult issues. But through that kind of work and uh, working together with vulnerable countries in the negotiations, I remember here as well, it tells me you remember this, it wasn't even that the G77 as a whole never even used to want to talk about adaptation finance. That's a big grouping of all of the developing countries that include, you know, the big middle income countries were quite happy to receive the majority of the money for emission reductions. So this is about also a story of how the least developed countries gradually have increased uh, their uh, influence, their power in those negotiations, how civil society can support them with that, with analysis, with facts generating pressure uh, through media work from the outside to allow them to get it on the table. And we have seen a quite dramatic increase in the flows to adaptation from an incredibly low baseline in the last five or six years. And now one of the important outcomes from, uh, from COP last year was that there was an agreement to double the, the flows of adaptation finance. Now that's okay. Look, in the grand scheme of things, with the amount of money that we really need for adaptation, it is still essentially a drop in the ocean. But we're also, we've got to take some satisfaction from the wins where we get them. And for sure, that was hard fought. And for the negotiators from developing countries that had to go into battle with the United States to get them to commit to doubling adaptation finance, that's no easy task. And so, you know, I just wanted to also kind of put that example on the table, showing how a range of civil society tactics working together with developing country governments at the UNFCCC can lead, albeit over quite a long period, to um, 
uh, to, to outcomes, which will make a real difference. You know, the doubling of, of uh, finance for adaptation, if that money is spent well, that makes a difference to communities around the world. So we shouldn't, uh, we should celebrate the wins, even if they're relatively small uh, where they come. Thanks, Tim. Um, and thanks again, Tasneem. Um, that's fantastic. Well, I think we've had just the most extraordinary event here. And uh, yeah, we've, we've had the passion and the knowledge combined, yeah, really acute analysis of the, of the situation, of the challenges, of, of the politics, both internal and external. It's been absolutely brilliant. So huge thanks to Tasney Mesop and Tim Gore, both really, really fantastic presentations. And as I said right at the beginning, next week we have Irungu Halton talking about being an activist on human rights in Africa. So in some ways it follows from what you were saying about the Egypt COP. So I'm really happy about the way this term is shaping up. Thank you. Thank you both. Do come back next week. Uh, I hope it'll be, even if it's even as half as good as this, it'll be worth coming for. Thank you very much, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this lecture recording from the Cutting Edge Issues in Development, Thinking and Practice series for 2021-2022. To hear more, don't forget to subscribe to our channel on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch any of these lectures back on our YouTube channel. Just search YouTube for International Development LSE. Stay informed about upcoming events, including the next Cutting Edge Lectures, by searching for events on the LSE Department of International Development website, or just follow us on Twitter at LSE underscore ID for the latest updates.